All right, you better be here Christmas Eve, 6 o'clock. It is going to be a night uh, to remember, a night for us to celebrate Jesus together. You're going to have a lot of fun. Your family, when you bring them, they're going to have a ton of fun. Um, get the word out for us. We've got those postcards in your seats. Uh, I really encourage you, man, be praying, God, who is it that you would have us to invite, to bring to Christmas Eve service? We see lives change at this every year, and, and we're believing that that we're not just going to have a turnout on Christmas Eve, but that God's going to get a hold of some people and turn their whole life around on Christmas Eve. And we are gearing the service uh, with a presentation of the gospel. If you have friends, family who don't know Jesus, they will have a chance to meet him on Christmas Eve, I promise. And uh, I, I really believe that that is going to happen in many people's lives. So be here, 6 o'clock, December 24th. In fact, I'd tell you to be here a little bit early. Um, it fills up uh, quite a bit. Uh, we've had to put out extra, a couple rows of extra chairs uh, in the past, um, and so if you want to get a good seat, and I promise you do, get here a little bit early, come hang out, uh, and be ready to enjoy that, and we will uh, have you out of here by 7.15, because I know you've got a lot of other stuff to do on Christmas Eve, but I promise this will be worth it. Um, other couple of things to let you know about. Uh, first of all, we wrapped up our Christmas parties this week. We had three of them this week, um, and I really want to say a big thank you to everybody who came and participated, uh, but especially to uh, Paul and Joanne Serwick, who hosted our 662 Christmas party, and especially to Cody and Mercedes Rogers, who hosted our Kid City party and our City Church party. If you would, come on, let's honor those who opened their home uh, and allowed us to come in. Uh, in fact, we are talking about it in the production meeting, and uh, I think quite a few people were at maybe one or two of them. Hopefully you got a chance to come to one of them. Uh, Cody Rogers was actually at all three of the Christmas parties. Uh, so if anybody in this room has Christmas spirit, it should be Cody, or anybody's ready for Christmas to be over, maybe it's Cody. I'm not sure which. Uh, but thank you guys so much for, for opening your home and sharing yourself and your life with us. Uh, also, uh, we've been mentioning the last couple of weeks, next Sunday we're going to have our special Christmas offering. That's uh, the 21st of December. We'll have our special Christmas offering next Sunday, um, and that will be uh, at the end of service. So we'll do our regular offering early on, and then we'll have the Christmas offering at the end. So please just be praying, God, what would you have me to give? How would you call me to open my treasures for you on that day? And last announcement for you coming into January as we come into the new year. Um, we are going to uh, do something we've done, I think, the last three years here. Uh, we are calling our people to participate uh, with us in a Daniel fast. Uh, if you're not familiar with a Daniel fast, basically it's a 21-day fast, uh, and it's a fast where you get to eat. That's the good part. Uh, so it's not a complete and total fast. It's taken out of the book of Daniel. I want to say chapter 10, uh, we find Daniel uh, perform this fast. And basically it's a fast where you don't eat meat. You don't have any dairy. You don't have any alcohol. Some of you, that's probably a really good fast for you uh, to, to go on that. But it's, it's 21 days where you set aside um, to really press into God's word, to really press in, lean into God's spirit, and fantastic way to kick off the year. My wife and I have actually, we've done it the last three years. I think the church has done it the last two. Um, and, and we've just seen so much growth in our own lives. It's just such a great way for us to kind of cleanse ourselves um, of all the, the holiday funk and all the junk. That comes with, with holiday eating and dessert, but, but more importantly, um, really just to, to tune in to what God would have for us in 2015. And so we'll have full details on dates and, and all that kind of stuff coming up next week. But I just want to let you know, begin to pray, God, would you have us to participate in this? And if, if you've never tried something like this before and it just seems so terrifying and so scary, I really encourage you to take this step. 
I believe that God has more for you in 2015 than you got from him in 2014. Uh, and one of the ways that we're going to get more from God is we've got to give more to him. Um, and, and if we press into him, as we draw near to him in ways that we've never drawn near to him before, I believe that God will do new and great things in our lives. Uh, so I really encourage you to do that. We're also going to be uh, in conjunction with our 21-day Daniel fast. I mentioned this a few months back. Uh, we did a series called Open the Book. And we read through the book of Matthew together. And we did one chapter a day. And I told you that was just kind of getting started. Because in January, we're going to uh, read through the entire New Testament in 30 days. Uh, which is going to put you on a pace of somewhere between 12 and 16 chapters a day. Um, I have done this twice. It is intense. It, it means you're going to have to schedule it into your day. You're not going to just go to bed and, okay, we're going to open and read 16 chapters. Uh, you're going to read four chapters in the morning, four chapters at lunch. Like, you're going to have to be intentional about it, but I promise. Number one, I know you can do it. Uh, it might mean that you have to sacrifice a TV show. It might mean that you've got to get rid of some other stuff in your life, which maybe will benefit you too. Um, but, but there's something about reading the New Testament in larger sections where you really see the context of this is what happened in this chapter, and this is what Jesus was going to. And you begin to see the, the whole story unfold together, which is so exciting and so different. I don't do this often. This is not my daily Bible reading. I am not that guy. Uh, but but for, for a season, for an opportunity to say, you know what, God, I'm going to give you my best to start out January. I'm going to press into you, maybe like I've never pressed into you before. I really encourage you, man, to begin to pray, begin to ask God, is he asking you to participate in the Daniel fast? ask you to participate in New Through 30, or, or maybe to do both. Um, and, and I think if you do both with us, I promise 2015 is going to be the best year you've had in a long time. Uh, it's going to start out in a way uh, unlike anything that you've seen uh, in your life. So keep that in mind. We are going to be better followers of Jesus in 2015 than we are in 2014. Amen? Amen. Come on. Like, let's not settle. Let's not get comfortable. Let's not like, say, hey, this is the point that I've reached, and this is where I'm going to stay. I believe that God is calling us from glory to glory. He's calling us to something better, and that means we've got to give more of ourselves to him. So go ahead and open your Bible today to Isaiah chapter 8. Uh, our scripture today as we go into um, our series, I Won't Survive the Holidays, is going to primarily be from right here in Isaiah chapter 8, as well as the beginning of Isaiah Chapter 9. In the scripture, we're going to find a message of hope. But there's also an acknowledgement of, of a frightening and, and despairful reality. We're going to see uh, the Israelites in a bad place. Uh, so let me tell you who my message is for today before I preach it. So, so that you'll know, hey, is this for me in my moment today? Is this for me maybe some point down the road? Is this for me to share with somebody in my life? Today my message is specifically for people who are on my heart who have suffered great loss. Uh, there's something about this time of year that puts a magnifying glass on loss. Uh, there's something about someone not being there at Christmas. There's something about saying, you know what, well, we used to be able to celebrate Christmas this way. We used to be able to give so much. We used to be able to travel and see family, but now we can't afford to do that. Uh, there's something about this time of year where those losses that we suffer throughout the year and throughout our lives kind of gradually accumulate, and maybe we can ignore them, maybe we can push through them. But this time of year, all of a sudden, they, they suddenly seem to mean a little bit more. They suddenly seem to cause a little more hopelessness and a little more despair in our life. So this message today is specifically for those of you who have suffered loss. This is the second installment in our series, I Won't Survive the Holidays. And what we 
instead we are going to do throughout this series is we're going to uh, make declarations based on Scripture. That, that We're going to make these declarations that will allow us not to just kind of get caught up in the depression and, and the frustration of I won't survive the holidays, but will allow us to push forward with God to say I won't just survive the holidays. And I believe that, that for some people, probably in this room today, you're not going to be able to not just survive the holidays, but thrive in the holidays until you learn how to move through those losses that you've experienced. Until we see, what does the Bible say to encourage us in the midst of great loss? And so our first declaration, or excuse me, our second declaration, our declaration for today is very simple. We're going to put it on the screen. I want you to repeat it after me. Our declaration is this. I will not dwell on what is lost but I will build on what remains. I will not dwell on what is lost. I will build on what remains. I believe this could literally save someone's life today. I believe this could literally save someone's marriage today. I believe this could literally save someone's Christianity today, their faith, their walk with God, someone who's going through a season of deep and dark despair. This could save you in the midst of what you're going through because the enemy wants to steal and kill and destroy. And he wants to make that loss amplify over everything else in our life. And yet we're going to determine and declare together that I'm not going to dwell on what's been lost, but I'm going to build on what remains. The scripture we're going to read today is a, a little difficult uh, on the surface. Uh, we're going to read through it together, and then we're going to set some context, context and go back through it. Uh, so, so hang with me, but as we go through it the first time, what I really want you to look for is, and we get to the end of Isaiah 8, verses 20, 21, and 22, I want you to see the despair and the depression uh, in, in the midst of Israel, the emotion that they're feeling uh, as we get into these verses. We're going to start in verse 18. Isaiah the prophet has the word of the Lord, and God tells him to say this. He says, Here am I, and the children the Lord has given me. We are signs and symbols in Israel from the Lord Almighty who dwells on Mount Zion. When men tell you to consult mediums and spiritists who whisper and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Why consult the dead on behalf of the living? Verse 20 is here where it really starts to get depressing. To the law and to the testimony, if they do not speak according to this word, they have no light of dawn. Distressed and hungry, they will roam through the land where they are famished. They will become enraged and looking upward will curse their king and their God. Then they will look toward the earth and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom. And they will be thrust into outer darkness. Now somebody's saying, okay, I needed a word of hope and encouragement today. And that is not the most encouraging verse that I've read recently. Uh, it's a statement of reality. This is where they're at. But don't stop at the end of Isaiah chapter 8. We're not going to. We're going to flip the page and turn to Isaiah 9. And we're going to see the tone begin to change. Isaiah 9 verse 1 says, Nevertheless, everybody say nevertheless. Nevertheless, Nevertheless, even in the midst of all this, there will one day be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the Gentiles by the way of the sea along the Jordan. Verse 2, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. And on those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. Let's pray. Father God, I ask you to help me today to take this word that, that is both embracing a harsh reality as well as discovering a, a new and a future hope. 
Lord, help me to, to take it and apply it to the situations that our people are going through. Lord, I pray today that this declaration that, that we will not dwell on what is lost, but we will build on what remains, God, that that would take root in our hearts, that that would be something that we affirm in our lives, God, that we would see you even in the midst of our lost and trust that you have something greater for us in the future. Lord, encourage them through this message today. We love you. We praise you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Everyone said, amen. My heart today is for those who suffered great loss, for those who have experienced the pain of having something and losing it. In this passage, Isaiah is prophesying around 700 years before Jesus is going to come. And what is going to happen here is God is sending his judgment on Israel. But basically, at this point in time, God's people have been split into two kingdoms. There's a northern kingdom, which is called Israel, and a southern kingdom called Judah. And since the, the split has happened, Israel has pretty much completely walked away from God. Judah has mostly walked away from God with little periods of turning to God and repenting in the midst. And so time after time, God sends a prophet, sends a man of God to warn them, to tell them, turn back to me, repent. I still love you. I'm still here for you. And time after time, Israel ignores him. Time after time, Israel continues to rebel. Israel continues to run from him. And so what we see here is God preparing to apply his discipline, not because he doesn't love Israel anymore, but because he loves Israel so much that he's not willing to let them continue to run away from the thing that they need the most. And so God's judgment is coming. What he's going to do, he's going to send a nation from the north called Assyria. And the Assyrians are brutal. They're they're nasty, violent people. And the Assyrians are going to come in and they're going to plunder Israel, carry the Israelites off into captivity. The Israelites are about to lose their homes, their possessions, their homeland, their freedom. They're about to suffer massive loss. Very, very significant loss. In fact, the Assyrians are the the ancestors, many of them, uh, of who we know now as ISIS or ISIS. And we still see the same brutality, the same violence, the same hatred of God and his people in the same part of the world today. And so God's judgment is about to fall on Israel. So today in your life, in the context perhaps of great loss, I want to speak a word of hope. And it may not start out so hopeful, but I promise it is going to get there. It is going to be encouraging before we leave. I believe that it's often in the midst of our greatest grief that God provides us with our greatest gifts where God shows up in, in the most tangible and amazing ways. This chapter of Scripture that we ended on, Isaiah chapter 9, goes on to say this, says, For unto us a child is born, for unto us a son is given, and the government will rest upon his shoulders, and he will be called Prince of Peace, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father. So God, in the midst of this judgment he's about to pronounce, he says, but there is hope. I am sending something. I'm sending someone. I'm sending myself, my son, my only beloved, my my greatest, my only begotten, to you, just like Jimmy said, to save. I'm sending Jesus. And even in the midst of the great loss the Israelites are about to experience, God declares amazing hope. I personally freak out when I lose something. I can lose something as small as my keys, and it might be for 30 seconds, it might be for three hours, uh, but I have no peace in my life while my keys are lost. 
uh, whether I don't I may not even need to go somewhere right now, but I'm going to need to go somewhere sometime, and I need to find those keys. Uh, and, and so I will tear up the house and tear up the bedroom and uh, just kind of freak out. I'm not any fun to be around, I promise, uh, when I can't find my keys. And, and you've probably experienced that, whether it's with your wallet or your purse or something important to you. And, and we're making light of something that we've all experienced, losing something uh, to, to, to set up for much deeper losses that maybe you've experienced, much more significant losses than some keys or a wallet. But it's a bad thing for me because I'm really good at losing stuff and I'm not very good at finding them. Uh, and so this happens many times in my life where I get frustrated and I get stressed, and that's not a good combination. If we look at the cumulative totals of all the things that the people in this room have lost, over the years, it would probably be pretty amazing. It would probably be pretty depressing. I think if we were to, to each be able to share our story, if you were to come up here and be able to share the things that you've lost in your life, the things that you once had that you no longer have, man, the, the, the cumulative weight of that loss would be very massive. Some of us uh, are, are going to have loss that I'm not going to be able to categorize today. Some of you have experienced loss in areas that we're not going to get to, but I think there are a few major categories that we can hit on that maybe most of us will be able to identify with on some level. Some of us have lost relationships. Some of us have lost relationships not through anyone's decision. Somebody died, and we lost that relationship. Some of us have lost relationship because someone who we loved through no choice of their own had to move somewhere across the country. Or maybe you had to move somewhere across the country, and it wasn't something you wanted to do, but it was the only choice you had. And so now, even though that person still exists, you don't have that relationship, that closeness with them that you once did. Of course, some of us have also lost relationships that were through the course of someone's decision. Someone decided they didn't want to be a part of your life anymore. For whatever reason, maybe it was something you did, maybe it was something you said, maybe it was something they did or something they wanted to go to be a part of, but they chose, you know what? This relationship is over. Sometimes that loss is even greater and more painful than the loss of someone who, who didn't choose it because now you have to wrestle with, okay, what did I do? What did I say? Why don't they want to love me anymore? Why don't they want to be with me anymore? But many of us in this room have lost relationships. We've experienced that pain. Sometimes you can keep a relationship technically, but the intimacy of that relationship has grown cold. And even though that person is still there in your life, you don't have that relationship that you once had. And you've experienced loss, even though they may literally and technically still be around. Sometimes our image of what we thought someone was is shattered. Someone we look up to, someone that we trust, someone that we've honored. And something comes out and we find some information and it turns out they weren't who we thought they were. And that we've lost this thing that it turns out we never really had to begin with. It's just something that we thought we had. Someone we thought we could look up to. Someone we thought we could admire. And that pain can be very deep. It can be very crushing. It's not just relationships that we lose, though. Of course, there's many other categories of loss. Perhaps you've lost an opportunity. Perhaps there was an opportunity in your life, in, in whatever aspect, whatever area that may have fleshed itself out in. And for whatever reason, you chose not to take that opportunity. You chose to take a different opportunity. And as it turns out, as you look back on your life, you're like, man, that was it. That was the one. That was the, the thing I should have pursued. That was the person I should have been with. That was the opportunity that God gave me. And I missed it. And so now you don't just miss the opportunity. Now you're not just losing that, but now you actually experience the loss of what life could have been. 
had I taken that opportunity? How that opportunity could have affected you. How things could look different. Perhaps there's someone in here who, every time he looks at his teenage daughter, he sees the lost opportunity of the time that he didn't spend with her. He sees the lost opportunity of the the investment he didn't make in her, of the values he didn't pour into her. And so every time he's around his daughter, even though she's in his life, he understands, I've lost years. I've lost time. I've lost this opportunity that God gave me to make an impact in her life. And that loss goes with you everywhere you go. Perhaps it happens suddenly. Perhaps it happens gradually. But all of us at some point in time experience and suffer loss. Some of you perhaps have lost money in the last, what, six, eight years? A lot of people have lost money in the value of their home. Maybe you've lost money in your retirement account. Now, when you're 34 years old like I am, that maybe isn't that big of a deal. But if you're 60 and you're coming up to that day where you're supposed to retire and yet those investments you made that you set aside to prepare yourself to be able to step out and now that money's gone, that loss may feel pretty significant. Now, maybe you're here today and you're like, okay, how can you compare money to to losing a relationship? Money's not that important. You're right. However, if money's not that important, you can give me all yours. And we'll see how important it is to you real quick, right? Like we all know that money is not it. It's not everything, but it matters. And when you experience loss financially, it affects many other aspects of our life. Perhaps some of you lost a job or a position. You lost a place. I think for men especially, this can be a deep impact, but many times for women as well. But, but men, we find our identity so much in our work. Uh, we find our identity so much in what we do. And so I've seen it where a guy hates his job, hates going to work, hates everything about it, and then he gets fired, and all of a sudden he doesn't know who he is anymore. And even though that thing he dreaded, that thing he didn't want to be a part of, all of a sudden there's a deep loss in his heart over this job that no longer exists. So many different ways that we can experience loss. Perhaps you've experienced loss in your area of health. Maybe you're experiencing loss in the area of health right now. I, I know for me, uh, my parents and my wife, and we talk about this quite a bit, that when you get around my mom and my dad, uh, you can't help but them opening up a conversation about where the will is, Uh, What's going to happen when they die? Here's the insurance. Here's where the key is hidden. Here's all this stuff. And it's like, oh, it's depressing. I don't want to talk about you dying anymore, Mom. Like, this isn't why I come to see you. Uh, And yet, as they get older, I realize that that's more and more of a reality. My my dad's 70 years old this year. My mom's in her 60s. I know they're not going to be around forever. And day by day, they're, they're gradually losing just a little bit more of that opportunity that God has given them to be on this earth. Day by day, I'm losing another day that my parents are going to be around. We all understand what it's like to experience loss. In fact, I believe the truth is that loss is a part of life. And we can put a happy Christian face on it, and we can say that God's come to be the God of abundance, and God is for you and not against you, and all those things are true. But in spite their truth, in this world, in this fallen, sinful world that we live in, you're going to experience loss. And you probably already have. It's a reality that we all experience. Of course, there's some loss that we bring upon ourselves. Nobody made you buy that timeshare. 
Nobody made you invest in that thing. Many times the bank account is empty, not because of something that the enemy did, but because we're stupid, right? How about an amen for all the stupid decisions we made? Praise Jesus for that. You can identify with some stupid moves, right? But yes, there is an enemy, and sometimes you don't lose because of anything that you've done. Sometimes you lose because there's an enemy who hates you, who's come to steal and kill and destroy, and he's trying to take stuff from you, and yet we've got to be careful not to give him too much credit and too much glory because everything that we lose isn't because of the enemy. Sometimes, and this is hard for us to grasp, sometimes we lose things because God brings things into our life for a season, and he brings it into your life for a season to teach you something and to bless you and to grow you for that season. And it was never meant to be something you were going to have forever. And so God brings it into your life for when you need it, and then he takes it away. And sometimes we don't like it when it's taken away. Sometimes we push back against that. And we think, God, what is going on? And God's not hurting you. He blessed you with that thing for the time that you needed it. But many times it's difficult for us to embrace the new season that God moves us in. And we just want that old season. And so there's so many types of loss. There's so many reasons for loss. But all of us can identify with what it feels like to go through that. When you lose something, obviously a state of grief can set in. And and so many of us handle grief differently. Some of us, man, when we go go through grief, like we don't, we just want to be out all the time. I want to go out. I want to see everybody. I don't want to be home because if I'm home, I'm thinking about what happened. I just got to surround myself with activity and busyness, and that's how I'm going to handle grief. Some of us go the other way, and we just don't get out of bed. Some of us, when we go through grief, we stop eating. Others, when we go through grief, we don't stop eating. <laughs> right? Like, we we handle it differently, and so I don't know all the ways that you handle grief. I don't know how grief attacks you. I'm not a psychologist. I didn't come here today to give you three steps to overcoming grief, to handle it emotionally. That's that's not who I am. I'm a pastor. That's what God's called me to do. And so what I want to do today is to take you to God's Word and to show you some things that I believe that He would encourage you with today. And today's message is going to be a little different. Instead of points, instead of steps, we're just going to pull out three words. We're going to find three words in this passage in Isaiah 8. In Isaiah 9, and I believe if you'll grab hold of those three words and see what those three words would speak to you today, I believe that God will deposit something in your heart that will help you through the loss that you're suffering right now and protect you through the loss that you're going to suffer in your future. Let's say it again. I will not dwell on what I've lost, but I will build on what remains. Do you agree with that today? Let's do it. Let's find out how we can get to that place. Um, when I was uh, in middle school, before I went to public school, uh, the church that we were at uh, had a Bible drill team. And what a Bible drill team was, was you would actually memorize sections of Scripture. We'd study a different book every year. And so my first year, we studied 1 Corinthians. And in 1 Corinthians, we'd study this book, and then we'd go to competitions, and they'd ask trivia questions from 1 Corinthians, and you'd buzz in and try to beat the other team and get into it. And, and so, yes, I was a nerd, okay? I was, that's the truth. It's just... I commit to be transparent and real and honest up here. I was a total nerd. And here's how much of a nerd I was. I got second place in our state in Bible drill when I was in seventh grade. And that sounds good, but the problem was I was jealous of the kid who got first. That's when you know you're a nerd, when you're jealous of somebody who's a better nerd than you. Okay? 
That's how big of a nerd I was. But I got second place in my state for studying 1 Corinthians. And 1 Corinthians, we studied in the King James Version, and we were in the Assemblies of God Church at the time, and then the Assemblies of God ran this whole competition. And so that was the year that they transitioned. They went from King James all the way up to that point to the next year when we studied the book of John, it was in the NIV. And here's what I learned about the transition between translations. The NIV, much easier to understand, much easier to know what I'm talking about and to get something out of. That's why primarily I preach out of the NIV. But here's the beauty of the King James. The King James is way easier to remember because it sounds really weird. If you're not familiar with the King James, it's the these and the vows and the shants and this, all that fun stuff. And, and it's very poetic. And the poetry of it actually makes it easier to memorize. So I went from second place in the state in the King James to like sixth place the next year in the NIV. I kind of dropped off. Uh, and, and so what I want to do today is we're going to take this same passage, but we're going to switch gears and we're going to go into the King James for a little bit of it. Because I want to give you three words from the King James because I think you're going to remember them. I think they're going to be something that, that you can hold on to. And as you suffer loss and as you go through loss, these are things that you can plant yourself on and say, you know what, I'm grabbing a hold of these and I'm not going to dwell on what's been lost, but I'm going to build on what remains. So the first word, and, and I got a picture uh, of these first two out of the King James, so you can see them. Uh, the first word is behold. Go ahead and write that down if you're taking notes. First word today is behold. Verse 18 says, Behold, I and the children who the Lord has given me are for signs and for wonders in Israel from the Lord of hosts, which dwelleth in Mount Zion. It's an important interjection. He says, Behold. Often when an angel appears, it's the first thing that he says. In fact, in the Christmas story, in Luke, Chapter 2, verse 10, if we go to the King James or even in the New King James, he says, uh, it says, And the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold. Everybody say, Behold. For behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you today, this day in the city of David, a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. Behold. What does behold mean? Behold just basically means stop and look. It means stop and look. It means to be aware of what is going on around you. And as you suffer Loss, as you experience that, what I want you to do first and foremost is behold. John the Baptist cries out when he sees Jesus. He says, behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Behold is an interjection that causes us to be aware of our surroundings, to be aware of our situation, to, to, to open our eyes and see what is happening in the moment. It means to look. It means to see. Look and see. God has not called you to close your eyes and pretend like nothing bad ever happens. came from something of a church background where, where we were so uh, focused on faith and, and speaking faith, and there was a lot of benefits to this, but, but you wouldn't admit if you were sick. Like, if you, oh, I'm not sick, and it's like you just threw up 37 times. Well, I'm not sick because I'm healed in the name of Jesus. Like, okay, you might be healed in the name of Jesus, but you need to go see a doctor. Right. Uh, and, and so we were so like and it was motivated well and I understand it. But but a lot of times we wouldn't just embrace the reality of here's the problem because uh, we wanted to speak faith. And I believe that God is a God of reality. Yes, he's a God of faith and he's a God of better things. But I think that we can admit what's going on in the moment. Here's my problem, God. Here's my pain. Here's what I'm dealing with. I just vomited 37 times. I need some help. Uh, and, and, and so behold, you can look and see your situation. You can see what's really going on. But before you do that, first of all, look and see God in your situation. How can I say that to a mom who's lost a baby? To look and see God in the middle of your situation. How can you say that 
to somebody who's going through something so painful and so terrible and so difficult. But I believe that we serve a God who is an ever-present help in times of trouble. And so I say that because I'm not saying that God caused your miscarriage. I'm not saying that God caused your loss or caused your pain. But I do believe this, that the Bible declares very, very clearly that God works all things together for the good of those who love Him. doesn't mean God causes all things for the good of those who love Him. But in the midst of your struggle, in the midst of your loss, in the midst of your pain, God is at work. And you've got to stop, and you've got to look, and you've got to find Him. Maybe that means that you've got to find Him. Uh, maybe you lost a job. God, where are you at? Well, God's there because you're able to get another job. Maybe you're not able to get another job. Maybe you're not able to work anymore. God's there because He put somebody in your life to take care of you. You've got to look sometimes and see what is God doing in the midst of my problem, in the midst of my challenge. How do you see in the dark? You go into a dark movie theater. I've used this illustration before, but I think it, it makes so much sense. We can all relate to it. You walk into a dark movie theater, you can't see anything. But you stay there for a minute or two, and your eyes start to adjust. And all of a sudden, you realize that there is some light in the room. You just had to find it. And maybe for you, in the midst of your dark situation, you just need to stop. You just need to take a minute. And allow your eyes to adjust. And maybe it is dark. Maybe it is dim. Maybe it is nasty. Maybe it is scary. But there's some light in that room somewhere. And your eyes are going to maybe take the time to find it. Just stop and wait until you can see God in the midst of it. Until you can find Him there. And then you can begin to move forward. But the first thing you need to do is to behold the promise of Christmas that God is with us. Emmanuel. Jesus has come to be with us. And even in the midst of the valley of the shadow of death, even in the greatest darkness that you'll ever face. God is right there in the midst of it. And you've just got to tune your eyes to find him. One of the other terms for a prophet like Isaiah is seers. Prophets are seers. They, they see things that we don't see. They see God things. They have a God-ordained vision. And so in the midst of what's about to happen to Israel, in the midst of the destruction they're about to face, Isaiah beholds something deeper. And something greater. He sees God in the midst of it. When you open your eyes, make sure you, you behold everything that God wants you to behold. Make sure that you see everything that he wants you to see in the minute. Behold your struggle. Don't suppress it. Take it in. Acknowledge it for what it is. But while you're beholding your struggle, don't you dare forget to behold your blessing. Because I guarantee you, you've got blessings in the midst of that struggle. And you've got to see it. You better see it. You better find it. It's there. If you look hard enough, you'll find God at work. In your darkness, that's our first word, behold. Our second word is going to come a little later on in Isaiah chapter 9. And it's beyond. Beyond. Go ahead and put that next slide up. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1. Nevertheless, the dimness shall not be such as was her vexation. This is where the King James gets really weird, right? Okay, this is why we don't do the King James normally. Vexation is the word we don't use a whole lot. But we see towards the end here. By the way of the sea, beyond Jordan and Galilee of the nations. What's he talking about? He's talking about Jesus. Jesus is coming from Galilee. He's coming from the other side of the Jordan. He says, something is coming, hope is coming beyond. In Scripture, the Jordan River always symbolizes transition. There's always something that takes place when they cross the Jordan. There's always a change that they experience. When they come in to the promised land, they have to cross the Jordan. They have to come beyond the river. And, and every time that we go into the Jordan, Jesus baptized in the Jordan. Throughout Scripture, we see transition, changes take place in the Jordan River. And so, there's hope beyond your situation. There's hope beyond your struggle. 
uh, in the, the old hymn that you might remember, Victory in Jesus. Oh, victory in Jesus, my Savior. I'm not going to sing the whole thing, I promise. Uh, just, just to get you in the tune of it. Well, the last verse talks about how there's something beyond the crystal sea. There's Greece of gold. There's a mansion beyond the crystal sea. There's a transition coming. There's a change coming. And it may not be in this lifetime. But there is something better out there. There's something beyond what you're going through. Uh, I don't know how many of you guys are familiar with Pastor Rick Warren. But, but Pastor Rick Warren is one of those guys, if you look at him from the outside, you, you might be jealous of him. Pastor Rick sold the best-selling book in the last 15 years. He wrote it. called Purpose Driven Life. And he wrote that book. And they've sold, I don't even know how many millions of copies. I think he's made like $90 million off that book. And by the way, he's given, uh, they're at a place right now, him and his wife Kay, last I knew they were giving 91% of their income to their church. Uh, they, they just increase every year. They give a little more, give a little more. And they've been doing this from years before he ever wrote a book that anybody cared about. Years before you ever heard of him, they were giving a little more, a little more. And, and he says, I've heard him say it, that, man, the reason why God allowed me to write that book, he said anybody could have wrote that book. But the reason why God allowed me to be the one who wrote that book was because he knew I'd be faithful with the blessing. Awesome, awesome man of God. And it'd be so easy to look at him and be jealous. He's, he's famous. He's, uh, man, he's prayed at the White House. He's had incredible opportunities. And yet, there's always a story behind somebody's glory. And if you dig a little deeper into his story, some of you are aware of this. The past, what, year, two years, uh, his son committed suicide. His son was mentally ill. He committed suicide. And not only did his son commit suicide, but him and his wife were viciously attacked on Twitter and social networks with people suggesting that, well, hey, his son must have been gay and he couldn't live up to the fact that his dad didn't embrace him. And, and none of that was true, but people just slandered this poor family through the midst of it. He suffered some great loss. He suffered some, some horrible pain. And yet I promise, uh, in the midst of it, Pastor Rick isn't just looking at his situation. He's looking beyond it. And despite what he's gone through, despite his pain, he's still getting up there at Saddleback Church. He's still preaching the good news of Jesus Christ. God is still using him. In fact, in many ways, God's using him in bigger and greater ways than he ever did before he went through that loss. Why? Because he was able to get beyond it. And anybody who suffers great loss, who you see, man, even in the midst of their loss, somehow they've been able to push past it. Somehow they've been able to continue to do great things for the, for the glory of God. Anybody in that situation, I promise, they know how to look beyond. They know how to look at something greater. And for Pastor Rick, his confession is, I know I'm going to see my son again. I know there's a hope out there that I'm going to be reunited with my boy. And for some of you, you might think heaven's just a fairy tale. For Rick Warren, it's not a fairy tale. It is the hope that he's built his life and his ministry on. He looks beyond his situation. My beautiful and amazing and awesome wife, she moved to Tulsa in August of 2004, to do an internship. And that's how I met her. I was actually on staff at the church where she came to intern at. And, and she came to intern, and she was so excited. She was fresh out of high school. She was taking a year off from, from school. She was going to go back to college after the internship. But she knew, hey, this is what I want to do. I, I want to go, and I want to learn youth ministry. I'm going to train, and I'm going to plug in at this church. And, and I'm so excited for it. And the, her church that she grew up in, they had modeled after this church in Tulsa, and she knew all about it. She'd gone to conferences there. She'd looked forward to this day, and her youth pastor told her about the internship. And she knew it's what she wanted to do. So she comes to Tulsa in August, and she does the internship. And by October, they cancel the internship. They turn the whole thing upside down, and she gets fired. No longer has a job. She can't. It's too late to go to college. No longer has this opportunity. She got like seven weeks of the training that she was so excited to get. She's such a small 
piece of time. And when it happened, her parents called the youth pastor who had told her about it. And they called Pastor Tim and, Pastor Tim, what's going on? Why would God take her down there for seven weeks knowing that this is going to happen? Why would God allow this to happen? Why would God allow her to waste a year of her life? Take a year away from, from these other opportunities that she had. Why would God allow that to happen? And Pastor Tim says, I don't know. I can't answer that question. But here's what I do know. God's not surprised by this. And he had a purpose for her in it. And we may not know that purpose on this side of heaven. Maybe we will. But there was a purpose for it. She's getting something out of it. And it's going to make a difference in her life. Well, I don't know everything that God took her down there for. But I know part of it. I wouldn't have this ring on my finger today. If God didn't take her to Tulsa to get fired after seven weeks. And so her and her family found so much hope in that statement of Pastor Tim that we don't know what's going on. We don't know why this has gone happened. We don't know why this whole year has been lost. But there's something beyond this internship. There's something beyond this experience. There's something beyond this pink slip that God had for us in this situation. They found hope in that. And five years later, she tied a knot. And we got married. And five years after that, we gave her parents a grandbaby. And they are obsessed with that kid. Uh, uh, like almost to an unhealthy level, but it's awesome. Uh, they love some Judah. You think I talk about Judah a lot. Get around her parents. Their Christmas card this year is Judah. No joke. That's the Christmas card. It's just Judah. No other family members, just our kid. And we didn't get one. But anyway, I'm not bitter. Um, look beyond your trouble. Look beyond your moment. Look beyond your Jordan. Look beyond your transition. I don't know why you're suffering the loss, but I know God's at work in the middle of it. And there's something beyond. So first, behold your situation. Secondly, look behind. And, and finally, and the most important word of the three, I believe, is this. And it's a funny one. It's nevertheless. Nevertheless. I'm an English nerd. I've always been. I've always loved words. And when I was a kid, I loved compound words. I loved any time two words were put together. This is the only one I know of where three words are put together. I don't even know how this is a word. Uh, like, it just doesn't fit in the English language, but it exists, uh, and it's nevertheless, and it's actually, especially in the King James, we find it in Scripture quite a bit, but it's actually even in the NIV. Uh, and so God uses this conjunctive adverb, nevertheless, to say, in the midst of your situation, something better is coming. In the midst of your problem, nevertheless, God is at work. In fact, nevertheless is the very first word found in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1. It's the tone transitions from one of suffering and despair to one of hope and of a future, nevertheless, is the transitional word that is used. Uh, God wants to turn our situ- attention away from our loss and towards his son. He oftentimes uses the word nevertheless. So we're going to actually look at nevertheless in the NIV because, again, Isaiah 9.1 is really confusing in the King James, and it's in both NIV and King James. So put it up in the NIV for us. Isaiah 9.1, nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. Anybody receive that as a word for you today? Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. I came to give you some hope today. I came to give you some encouragement today. God's word says, nevertheless, I know there's a lot of loss. I know there's some pain. I know there's some challenge. But nevertheless, there will be a day where there's no more gloom for those who are in despair. What an awesome promise of God. If you can get nevertheless in your spirit today, then you can walk out of here not only beholding what God is doing all around you, not only looking beyond your situation, but you can walk out of here today and you can stand toe-to-toe with anything the enemy wants to bring at you. And you can say, I know that God has something better for me. Nevertheless, I'm not going to give up on him. I'm not going to lose my faith. I'm not going 
to stop moving forward. Nevertheless, it gets me excited. I'm adding it to my vocabulary. Watch out. I'm going to put on my voicemail. I'm not available. Nevertheless, you can leave a message. I don't know. I'm working it in somehow. I'm finding a way. It's an awesome word. There's hope. I'm going to give you, there's, it's all throughout Scripture. I want to give you three examples uh, before we wrap up today. Very quickly, Ezekiel 16, we discover that God loves us with the nevertheless love. He says, nevertheless, I will remember my covenant with you in the days of your youth, and I will establish an everlasting covenant with you. For everyone in this room who's ever run from God, who's ever failed him, who's ever promised God something, and done the exact opposite, felt like such a, such a, a fool, such a failure, so sinful, such a wretch, I want you to know that God loves you with a nevertheless love. Next time you blow it big, the next time you screw up big, say, yeah, I messed up. Yeah, that was really dumb. But nevertheless, God still loves me. Nevertheless, I got a God who hasn't given up on me. Nevertheless, he's still for me and not against me. Nevertheless, he's still got something he's going to use me for. Nevertheless, I'm not stopping with my mistakes. I'm not defined by my failure. Nevertheless, God has still got something for me. Come on. Nevertheless, what an awesome promise of God's word. Nevertheless, Luke 5, we find another nevertheless confession. This time we see Peter out on his boat, and he's been out there fishing all night. In fact, he's not even Peter yet. He's still Simon. This is before Jesus changes his name. He's out there fishing, and he's an expert fisherman. He's grown up in this. His family's fisherman. He knows fish. And this carpenter shows up and tells him, you're doing it wrong, Peter. And we see this amazing nevertheless confession in Luke chapter 5, verse 5. It says, but Simon answered and said to him, Master, we have toiled all night and caught nothing. In other words, uh, I'm the fisherman, you're the carpenter, you can be the rabbi, you can teach people, don't tell me how to fish, right? I've been out all night, we put the net here, we put the net there, we tried this, we tried that, there ain't no fish in there. But what does he say? He says, nevertheless, at your word, I will let down the net. What an awesome statement of obedience. Who in here is ready to begin obeying God's word with a nevertheless kind of faith. Who in here is ready to begin saying, okay, God, I don't get it. It doesn't make sense to me. I tried this and it didn't work. But if that's what you're telling me to do, I know that you know better than I do. I know that you see things that I don't see. And nevertheless, I'm going to obey you. Nevertheless, I'm going to do it your way. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will will be done. Nevertheless, what an incredible Incredible moment. I could give you tons and tons of other examples. We see in Scripture, we see a man named Job. And Job, if, if anybody knows loss, it's Job. If you're familiar with Job's story, man, this man lost everything. He lost family members. He lost wealth. He lost possessions. He lost his health. His skin begins falling off and rotting off of his flesh. He goes through so much loss, and his wife comes to him, and she says, What are you doing? God's failed you. This God who you serve, who you worship, he's not for you. Why are you continuing to speak positive to him? Deny him. Turn away from him. And Job says, nevertheless, I don't understand why I'm going through all this. I don't understand why all this has happened to me. But I worship God in the good days, and I'm going to worship him in the bad days. I served God when he came so much wealth and prosperity for me. I'm going to serve God when I lose everything. Nevertheless, I'm not going to speak ill of him. And if you know the story, he got more restored to him than he lost. God ends up blessing him even far beyond what he'd ever experienced before. Why? Because they had a nevertheless faith. There's another story in Scripture of a lady named Ruth. Ruth, they suffered loss. Her husband died. And yet, even when her husband died, you know what she did? She decided, I'm moving and I'm staying with my mother-in-law. That's the nevertheless faith right there. Right? 
This is the family God brought me to. This is the destiny he had for me. And even though he took out the whole reason why I decided to be part of this family, nevertheless, I'm going where you're going. Your people are going to be my people. Your God is going to be my God. Nevertheless, I'm not going to lose my faith. And if you don't lose your faith in the midst of your loss, the enemy is not going to win. Nevertheless, we see a man named Elisha. Elisha had a hero. He had a friend. He had a mentor named Elijah. And one day he's out walking with his friend. And right before his eyes, God takes Elijah up into heaven. And all of a sudden, Elisha's lost the one that he loves. All of a sudden, Elijah's lost the man that, that he learned everything from, the man that he's trained under. All of a sudden, it seemed like everything stopped for Elijah. But Elisha had a nevertheless faith. And he said, okay, God, even though the one that trained me is gone, even though the one that, that, that sowed so much into me, even though the one that I looked up to, even though the one that was there for me is no longer here, nevertheless, I'm not giving up on you. And so he stoops down and he grabs Elijah's cloak and he comes to the river, the Jordan River, and he strikes the river with that cloak and the river parts and he walks across and he transitions into the anointing that God had for him. And Elisha went out and did twice as much as Elijah did because he had a nevertheless faith. Nevertheless, is there anybody in here today that's ready to say, okay, God, I don't care what comes my way. I don't care what I go through. I don't care what challenges the enemy brings to me. I'm ready to serve you with a nevertheless kind of faith. I'm ready to follow you. I'm ready to believe you in the midst of my loss. Even though I've lost so much, I'm not dwelling on what I lost. But I'm going to build on what remains because you're not done with me yet.